This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we conclude our discussion over the Odyssey, the timeless 24 books that introduced us to so many monsters and legends. But of course, it goes without saying, we've just scratched the surface in understanding how all of this has influenced our world. Uh, In fact, even as we claim to be on the last episode, we're still just a little over halfway through the story itself. And our task today is to fly through the rest of the books in 45 minutes, give or take. You think we can do it? <laughs> Probably not, but we'll give it a try. Obviously, there is no way to discuss everything that could be said or has been said about Homer himself. These books and all the themes that have been cleverly weaved here, we've chosen to hit the high points, obviously, but we don't need to overlook the Greek idea of weaving itself as an important theme. (laughs) Oh, yes. The women and their weaving. Christy, how good of a weaver are you? Well, uh, you know the answer to that. I have no idea how to weave, how to spin, or even so, I could never have been Sleeping Beauty. Is that the of, one? We have some of your childhood <laughs> needlepoint around oh, here. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I can still sew on a button. You know, my mother and grandmother were amazing seamstresses. My mother even competed in 4-H at Boone's Creek High School in Gray, Tennessee. And I know your sisters, Barbara and Deanna, are amazing seamstresses, but I just don't do it. <laughs> You got skipped. (laughs) I know. I mean, and sewing's not even weaving. In my mind, although this is nowhere near historical fact, I kind of see a devolution here. Weaving has been simplified to sewing, and now because we don't have to make cloth, sewing uh, is not even a thing. Now we just order off of Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) We push buttons on the phone. Oh, Well, first of all, that analysis of the uh, disintegration from weaving to ordering on Amazon is, um, you know, a little bit ridiculous. But if you're going to go there, uh, don't take away from the talent of finding the sale and couponing. That's an art, too. True. 
Uh, but back to the ancient Greeks. It's easy to overlook if you're not paying attention to the female characters that Homer really places an enormous emphasis on weaving throughout the Odyssey. I mean, even the goddesses weave. Circe weaves. Athena herself weaves. And it clearly intercates how interwoven. (laughs) Weaving is to the idea of womanhood. So let's start there. How important was weaving in ancient Greece? For sure. Um, Spinning and weaving were incredibly important in the expectations for women during this time period. Um, There was a definite and strong connection between a woman's ability to weave and her desirability as a woman. Aren't you glad that's not still true? So true. Even depictions of goddesses that we see today on ancient artwork are often depictions of the goddesses weaving. And Athena, by the way, uh, was the goddess of women's handicrafts. So, of course... Weaving and spinning were important elements of her cult. In fact, uh, weaving a robe for the statue of Athena was a part of the very important Panathenaic festival in Athens at the Acropolis. In the archaeological digs found in Greece, archaeologists have found all kinds of tools used in spinning and weaving. And there's evidence of looms and textiles and, you know, strong evidence leaking the female contribution in terms of textiles uh, to economic trading at a domestic level and also at a commercial uh, industrial level. I mean, it's interesting to understand that women of all social classes were weaving from the lowest slaves even up to the highest noble women like we saw in Queen Arete of the Phaeacians, girls would learn to work wool and weave, and they would spend a big portion of their time on their trousseau. And as you know, a trousseau was a collection of all the garments and furnishings and beddings and clothes that a girl would produce during her childhood and would represent her contribution to her marriage. You know, I remember my grandmother using the word trousseau, but it had nothing to do with anything I personally was making. (laughs) Well, the the more updated version of that is the hope chest. Oh, yes. Uh, You know, if it depended on weaving, I would be in a world of hurt. I can't imagine how whoppy my trousseau would look. Uh, But even without having, you know, that insight about the culture around weaving, it doesn't take much to see that clothes are a big part of the all-important recognition scenes here at the end of the epic. It's an interesting element in the whole story to notice how clothes have been used by Homer to designate people's identity. But before we do that, I don't want to leave the weaving anecdotes before... We talk about Arachne uh, and Athena. Well, uh, Arachne, as in like where we get the word arachnophobia or fear of spiders. Yes. So there's a story that there's this girl named Arachne in ancient Greece who was so good at weaving and spinning that she went around telling people she was a better weaver than Athena. Well, obviously, that is a foolish thing to do. So Athena challenged her to a weaving duel. Oh, that had to be wild. (laughs) And they set up their looms, they wove all day, all night, and when they finished, they compared their work. Well, Athena had woven this scene of all the gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus sitting together, doing good deeds for humanity. Arachne, the uh, crazy girl. The challenger. (laughs) Wove a cloth of all the gods and goddesses on Mount Olympus, too. But in hers, they were all getting drunk and falling over themselves. Uh, Arachne was proud because she clearly had the better craftsmanship. But who cares about that? Not Athena. She pointed her finger at Arachne and made her entire body shrivel up 
into what today we would call a spider. <laughs> and she said, you want to spin? Go ahead and spin. And there's where it all began. So every spider you see <laughs> is a miniaturized goddess. Well, I guess that's one way to look uh, you know, at it. Uh, Arachne should have known better. I mean, I would say the first rule of the gods is don't hack off the gods. So true. Uh, so, by the way of recapping episode one, we discussed the poet Homer and the setup for the story. We introduced the idea that Homer does not take credit for writing the story. The muse sung it to him. The story comes from the gods and is about um, a man Dr. Wilson translates as a complicated man. Fagels calls him the man of twists and turns. And we learn at the beginning of book one uh, that after offending Poseidon, and wandering the sea for 10 years, Odysseus returns home, a place called Ithaca. But he arrives there shipwrecked and alone, all of his companions destroyed by their own recklessness. They should never have eaten Helios's cows. Well, I've been avoiding them. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we introduce this Greek idea that there are things that happen to us as humans that are not our fault. Things that are caused by the gods. That is a thing. But there are also many things that happen to us that are our fault because of our own foolishness. But oftentimes we blame the gods for things that were always in our ability to control. What happened to Odysseus falls into this category. What happened to him was caused by him. He did not respect the gods and the rules of the universe that they created. What happened to him also happened to him just because he couldn't let his ego rest. He had the fear of being a nobody. <laughs> mm. Well, he isn't, he isn't the only person on this earth with that fear. In uh, episodes two and three, we looked at the world the gods created and the values they instructed men to live by. Uh, episode two, we looked at books one through four, often called the Telemachy, and we watched Telemachus develop as a man. And, of course, the first trip uh, or tip to developing into a man is to learn to listen to Athena, something Arachne should have really paid attention to. <laughs> she may now. Well... We wouldn't have so many dangerous spiders, perhaps, if she did. But anyway, episode three, we talked about Xenia, Xenia, and how fundamental hospitality is to the books of the Odyssey, as well as to the lives of the ancient Greeks as a whole. Actually, if I'm honest, it's not just Greek culture. There's lots of cultures around the world, even today, not just ancient, uh, that have a high, place a high value on hospitality. We talked about Polyphemus, the one-eyed Cyclops, and how his lack of hospitality can be tr contrasted with some of the many other examples of hospitality all over the epic. We talked about how these hospitality scenes are something that we call type scenes. That's going to come back again uh, in this episode as well, and we can learn a lot by comparing the different type scenes. Do you know what I've decided I'm going to do now? No. <laughs> the next time I see a spider, I'm going to go, the curse of Athena yes. is on you. Yeah. Oh, that's something you could just say randomly. Yes. <laughs> and people will wonder, like, what are you talking about? Uh, well, you know, on a side note, I was reading a little bit about the Odyssey this week, and one writer asked a very interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it. All right. Throw it out there. Okay. So this person was asking, how can two Greek gods, Polyphemus's mother, was she was a beautiful sea nymph, but he wondered how two beautiful Greek gods could possibly have an ugly child with one giant eye. Yeah, that's a good question. Did you find the answer? Uh, no, I did not. 
So if anyone out there knows, uh, connect with us on social media or via email, we'll give you the shout out because we're interested in knowing. <laughs> so true. So back to our story. The role of Polyphemus that he plays in the Odyssey highlights this burning need inside of Odysseus. Odysseus, after Polyphemus eats his men one by one, is able to blind the Cyclops. He's able to sneak away back onto his ship. Blind and enraged, Polyphemus hurls rocks at Odysseus. As Odysseus leaves, Odysseus's big mistake is not blinding Polyphemus, but taunting him. As he leaves, Odysseus just can't leave it alone. He tells Polyphemus that if anyone ever asks who blinded him, tell him it was Odysseus. He previously told Polyphemus that his name was nobody, but he couldn't let it go. Odysseus was not going to be a nobody. He wanted to be a somebody. He wanted to be the recognized leader of his oikos, and he was going to strive for that. And it didn't matter if it took his entire mortal existence. He would pay any price for that. He would even relinquish an offer of immortality. And so Odysseus takes his 10-year odyssey to get there. And I will say uh, it is not lost on me that uh, one of the most central ironies of the entire story is that here at the very beginning, Odysseus cannot let a lie stay a lie. But for the rest of the epic, uh, especially here at the end, we see that Odysseus is not just extremely comfortable lying, but in fact, it's really his trademark. And he prides himself on his ability to deceive. And uh, the last half of the book is literally him lying and deceiving first one group of people and another, all the way until the last chapter where he lies to his own dad, really, for no apparent reason. I know. I didn't see much reason to that either. But anyway, Athena finds it admirable, and she helps him conceal his identity time and time again. Odysseus prefers the term tactics to hmm. lying, really. Okay. <laughs> he learns to use deceit and recognition as a weapon for survival. And we're going to see here as Homer brings the story to its dramatic climax that from a literary standpoint, we're going to, there's these type scenes again to be used to structure all these recognitions of these different people or groups of people that need to learn who he is. Remember, a type scene is is a set of is a series is a pattern that's repeated over and over again. Well, there are over a dozen recognition scenes here in the second half of the book, and they do follow a similar pattern. Odysseus will test the person he wants to reveal himself to. He wants to know if they're loyal, not just to him, but to the oikos. He'll use deception and concealment in this testing process. Most of the time, he comes up with these crazy stories about who he is and where he's from. After going through the long, convoluted story of the fake travel, he will either foretell that Odysseus will return home, or he'll reveal his identity. It depends on the audience. Well... Uh, you know, never again after Polyphemus is he going to make this rash decision to just openly state his identity. You know, he learned from that one. He's not even going to reveal it to Penelope. Um, Athena really is most responsible for his many disguises. I mean, she changes his physical appearance and she gives him false covers of other kinds, including these convoluted stories and the whole game is to go into the place, conceal who he is until he's in full control of the moment, and then together with the gods, make his move. 
It works so, for me. Yeah, here at the end, he and his oikos will be given divine power to overthrow the suitors, reclaim his physical space and title, and do all of this without starting a war with the families or the oikos from which all these suitors came from. I mean, that's a trick even greater than killing the suitors. It's not making the family hate you. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. I know. Uh, and it takes a god to make that, to pull that off. But anyway, back to the weaving and the textiles, where I want to go back to just for a second. I think it's important to understand and notice the role that people's clothes pay in identifying who they are. It's very clear that in Homer's world, an person's outfit very much determines where they rank in society. I mean, just notice how important textiles are as a gift from one king to another. Notice how important it is to be dressed in the proper way in order to receive the proper respect. Well, of course. I mean, that is not uncommon in all cultures. And a very important psychological observation. Um, I think it was Virginia Woolf, the British writer, who said, Vain trifles as they seem, clothes have, they say, more important offices than merely to keep us warm. They change our view of the world and the world's view of us. I mean, you know, there are endless studies on the role of clothing functioning as identification. Which, I guess, the simplest way for us to look at it here is to reduce it to this. A king without a proper tunic is not a king. Odysseus, dressed as a beggar, is not Odysseus. He can be Odysseus in his head. He can be Odysseus in Telemachus's head. He can be Odysseus in Athena's head. But until he is recognized from the outside, he cannot reclaim Odysseus's oikos. And we see clothing playing an important role in concealment and in these recognition scenes. The goddess Athena, before she allows Telemachus to recognize his father, makes a point. Even before she changes Odysseus's body, she changes his clothes. Let's read the famous passage where Athena reveals to Telemachus that his father has come home. Athena stroked him with her golden wand. First, she made the cloak and shirt on his body fresh and clean, then made him taller Supple, young, his ruddy tan came back, the cut of his jawline firmed, and the dark beard clustered black around his chin. Her work complete, she went her way once more, and Odysseus returned to the lodge. His own son gazed at him, wonderstruck, terrified too, turning his eyes away suddenly. This must be some god. And he let fly with a burst of exclamations. Friend, you're a new man, not what I saw before. Your clothes, they've changed. Even your skin has changed. <laughs> it goes on to become a really sweet passage. A son recognizes a father, a father recognizing a son. So yeah, sweet. you know, for sure it's sweet. But, but in one sense, the word recognition um, isn't really the right word here. Telemachus doesn't really know his father. I mean... He can't possibly recognize him, um, which I think is an interesting thing to pay attention to as we go through all these scenes. All of these people who Odysseus presents himself to, they have a different relationship with Odysseus. And uh, Telemachus has an intimate relationship with his father in one way, 
but he has no shared history with him, which is interesting. He has no idea what his father's capable of, you know, which comes out in our dialogue. And Telemachus is uh, quick to tell his father that reclaiming the oikos is not just a matter of showing up. This is Telemachus speaking. Father, all my life I've heard of your great fame, a brave man in war and deep mind in counsel, but what you say dumbfounds me, staggers imagination. How on earth could two men fight so many and so strong? These suitors are not just 10 or 20. They're far more. <laughs> he goes on to count them. Uh, we have at a minimum 106 posers, maybe more. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about one of those Die Hard movie. <laughs> to which Odysseus responds, he's not worried. He's got a plan. Let's read Odysseus's plan. Let me tell you, the old soldier said, bear it in mind now, let's do it closely. Think, will Athena flanked by Father Zeus do for the two of us, or shall I rack my brains for another champion? <laughs> hmm. I think that would make me feel more confident if I had uh, Athena and Zeus on my side. I, I, I think I might feel better, too. Uh, and uh, Telemachus does seem a little more confident. At least he's confident when he talks to his mom, which is annoying to be totally honest i can't get rid of the arrogance of the present when i hear him talk <laughs> down to her but you know he talks more boldly to the suitors as well and his mom's happy about that i love that odysseus cannot keep his identity secret from his old nurse that's even more sweet the recognition swing with Eurycleia is the only one that he doesn't initiate she does when she washes the beggar's feet and legs, she touches the scar, and then she knows immediately what's going on. Of course, this freaks him out to the point that he threatens her needlessly, I may add. Well, and let's not forget about Argos the dog. Argos recognizes him. True. There's a lot of drama that goes on as Odysseus disguises as a beggar, loiters around his home and watches how horrible all the suitors are behaving. There's even a fight. Um, this place is in utter chaos, and the whole thing is designed to fill him with total rage. I did want to draw just a small minute of attention to book 19 when the beggar and Penelope talk. Disguise, he's disguised at this point as a beggar. Uh, Penelope does not know that Odysseus is Odysseus, at least she pretends not to know. There's lots of conflicting scholars that are convinced that she does know, and she's just faking him out. Either way, the interaction is kind of sweet. Odysseus, as he always does, goes on with this long, elaborate lie about who he is, where he came from, and over the course of the story, he claims to have actually met Odysseus. Penelope tests the beggar, and she says, "'Will you describe for me what Odysseus was wearing when you met?' Which he does. Let's read that part. King Odysseus, he was wearing a heavy woolen cape, sea purple in double folds with a golden brooch to clasp it, twin sheaths for the pins, on the face a work of art. A hound clenching a dappled fawn in his front paws, slashing it as it writhed. All marveled to see it, solid gold as it was, the hound slashing, throttling the fawn in its death throes, hoofs flailing to break free. I noticed his glossy tunic, too, clinging to his skin, like the thin, glistening skin of a dried onion, silky soft, the glint of the sun itself. 
for something he saw all those years ago, I mean, that's quite a bit of detail he that he remembers. And this is one of the few instances where you can claim that telling somebody their skin looks like an onion peel is a compliment. <laughs> So true. Uh, this makes Penelope cry, not because of the onion, though. Yes. <laughs> she cries because she'd given him that outfit and she had fastened the brooch on herself. You know, it isn't too long after that uh, that the scene will be set for Odysseus's complete revelation. Just as a recap for those who haven't read the story in a while, um, Penelope has made the decision that it's time to pick a husband She's gone into the vault and pulled out Odysseus's old bow, uh, you know, one he never took to Troy. She goes downstairs. She faces the suitors with a challenge. It will decide her fate. So let's read what she says there. Listen to me, my overbearing friends, you who plagued this palace night and day, drinking and eating us out of house and home with the Lord and Master absent, gone so long. The only excuse you can offer is your zest to win me as a bride. So to arms, my gallants, here is the prize here is the prize at issue right before you. Look, I set before you the great bow of King Odysseus's now, the hand that can string this bow with greatest ease, that shoots an arrow clean through all twelve axes. He is the man I follow, yes, forsaking this house. Where I was once a bride. <laughs> well, you know, the part about all the suitors getting up and trying to string the bow is just classic dramatic buildup. I mean, uh, finally, the beggar gets his turn, courtesy of Penelope. The suitors have no idea what hits them. Ah! It's a pun. I guess they're going to get the point. Yeah, another From pun. From the arrow. <laughs> Well, uh, they do. I do want to point out that the recognition scene with Eumaeus and Philodius in book 21 goes very quickly. I mean, there's not any time. The bow contest is heating up. Revenge is coming. Well, that's true. But I also think what we're witnessing is the progression from these less intimate relationships toward the most. I mean, he didn't know Telemachus at all. They, I mean, Telemachus didn't know him, not really. He did know Eurycleia, the swineherd and the goatherd, but his relationship with those three are one of master-servant or employer-employee, to use our language. He engages them here, uh, in some sense, in the old way, as the boss. Odysseus needs these servants, as well as Eurycleia, to come through for him now. Eumaeus had already spent quite a bit of time with Odysseus as a beggar, and he'd already made multiple comments about how much this beggar resembled Odysseus. So he pretty much had been primed. But Philodius had been primed, too. If you remember, at one point as a beggar, uh, Philodius asks, I mean, well, Odysseus asks him, if Odysseus were to come back, would you help him? Um, both of these men were familiar with the scar and he uses that physical scar as evidence really the only evidence except they fall back into this old rhythm of the work relationship that they enjoyed back in the old days Odysseus's tone here is matter of fact it's authoritative and they're very comfortable falling back into that old relationship we don't even see much of a struggle there well, this point where the suitors recognize Odysseus is really one of the most exciting parts of the whole story. I agree. Even after Odysseus strings the bow and he shoots the arrow through the 12 axes, uh, the suitors really don't know what's going on. And 
It's really only after Antonis is murdered in front of them that they really start to figure out what's happening. They're a little slow on the uptake. But, <laughs> but of course, whether they recognize Odysseus at this point really doesn't matter at all because they're all getting ready to die anyway. Indeed. Now, stripping back his rags, Odysseus, master of craft and battle, vaulted onto the great threshold, gripping his bow and quiver, bristling arrows, and poured his flashing shafts before him, loose at his feet, and thundered out in all suitors, Look, your crucial test is finished now at last, but another target's left that no one's hit before. We'll see if I can hit it. Apollo, give me the glory. You know, Homer does like to get all Game of Thrones graphic here (laughs) with these death scenes. And they do, you know, they're kind of fun. Uh, If you like gore, Uh, read chapter 22. It's worth a perusal. Um, Eurymachus tries to broker a deal. That's one of the suitors when he sees what's going on. Uh, The poor female slaves, I kind of feel sorry for them. Uh, They have a terrible end. Their existence and the fact that the suitors took them as concubines, you know, there's no discussion of whether or not they ever had an option. Uh, But they, what they had done, who they were, their relationship with these suitors was a source of shame to the oikos. And so it didn't matter. Uh, They had to go. Let's read that. With that, taking a cable used on a dark, proud ship, he coiled it over the roundhouse, lashed it fast to a tall column, hoisting it up so high no toes could touch the ground. Then, as doves or thrushes beating their spread wings against some snare rigged up in the thickets, flying in for a cozy nest, but a grisly bed receives them. As the women's heads were trapped in a line, nooses yanking their necks up one by one so all might die, a pitiful, ghastly death. They kicked up heels for a little, not for long. (laughs) I Hmm. told you. You know, Odysseus is cleaning up. Uh, Eurycleia has brought her master fire and brimstone, and he's purging the halls, the palace, the court, all of it. It's quite a big picture of devastation and renewal. However, even with all of the emphasis that Homer puts on to the end of the suitors, the killing or the revenge isn't the main thing. Much more attention is given to Odysseus becoming recognized by those that matter most. And the people that matter are just going to intensify. We have his wife and then his father, and that will be the completion of his oikos. And that's to come. That's what chapters 23 and 24 are about. With Penelope, it literally takes three attempts to convince her of who he is. The first two of these attempts aren't even made by Odysseus at all, but by Eurycleia and then, of course, Telemachus. Well, you know, just to bring it back to a modern theme and something uh, that we have to think about, especially when it comes to reuniting with romantic partners. I mean, the recognition with Telemachus was easy. The recognition scene with the servants was exciting. And this recognition scene with Penelope is expressed with way more mixed emotions, uh, which is extremely understandable. I mean, when two people are brought together after a long time, uh, there's a sense that the external recognition is really only a part. And I may recognize who you are on the outside, but will I recognize who you are on the inside? Are you even the same person you were when I last saw you? Uh, Am I the same person I was when you last saw me? And of course, the answer here is 
No, of course, neither one of you is the same. You're literally not even the same physical person. All the cells in your body have replicated and completely changed, if we're going to get scientific. But, <laughs> but of course, that's not what worries people. Uh, you know, will we have a relationship anymore is the question. Those are not easy questions for anyone. And the psychological gap in a case of 20 years is really enormous. And Homer expresses every bit of that. After Penelope is told Odysseus is home, she responds with coldness and skepticism. Homer says her heart was in turmoil, torn. Should she keep her distance, probe her husband? Let's read that paragraph. With that thought, Penelope started down from her lofty room, her heart in turmoil, torn. Should she keep her distance, probe her husband? or rush up to the man at once and kiss his head and cling to both his hands. As soon as she stepped across the stone threshold, slipping in, she took a seat at the closest wall and radiant in the firelight faced Odysseus now. There he sat, leaning against the great central column, eyes fixed on the ground, waiting, poised for whatever words his hardy wife might say when she caught sight of him. A long while she sat in silence, Numbing wonder filled her heart as her eyes explored his face. One moment he seemed Odysseus to the life. The next, no, he was not the man she knew. A huddled mass of rags was all she saw. Notice the detail. It's the rags. Telemachus, like a child, fusses at his mother. But sweet dad comes to his wife's defense. That would charm me. (laughs) Anyway, I think it's cute how Homer creates this developing connection for these two. In essence, we see them perform something of a mental fight, or you can think of it as a dance. They're going to engage each other intellectually and in some sense to see if they're still intellectually compatible. Odysseus, up to this point in the story, has never met his match by anyone. He's outsmarted everyone, even Circe. Never mind the hundreds plus suitors. But Penelope stumps him. Mm -hmm. Athena does her part back to clothes. She weaves for him, and she decks him out in fine clothes. And now he is the recognized king. She makes him godlike. But even that is not enough. Penelope outdoes Odysseus in skepticism, and she tests him with the instruction that his bed be prepared. This is what she says to the, to the maid, prepare his bed outside in the hall. What we see here is the difference between outside recognition and inside recognition. For the servants, seeing the scars is evidence enough that their master's home. But for Penelope, not even seeing her husband as a king is enough. What is special about that bed is that it contained a secret. That bed was their secret. She wanted to know if the bed in his mind was still their secret. Let's read that. Woman, your words, they cut me to the core. Who could move my bed? Impossible task. (laughs) This is so ingenious because uh, not only does she prove uh, that she is indeed Odysseus's wife, but in essence, she opens the door to allow them to engage in, you know, really intimate feelings uh, at this juncture. That's a good point. Read the end of that uh, paragraph 
you know, after she, he goes through describing the bed and how he made it, uh, read that part where she, she talks about that. Working from there, I built my bed start to finish. I gave it ivory inlays, gold and silver fittings, wove the straps across it, ox hide gleaming red. There's our secret sign. I tell you, our life story. Does the bed, my lady, still stand planted firm? I don't know. Or has someone chopped away that olive trunk and hauled our bed staff off? I like that part. What matters isn't really the recollection that the bed can't move, but what that bed has meant to them regarding, you know, uh, loyalty and fidelity and trust. These are the issues at stake in Penelope's heart. And in many ways, we are really never told how she feels. And her options in life have been really limited, and the stress has been extremely great. And, uh, you know, Odysseus comes back as a savior in one sense, but that is a fairy tale way of thinking about life. And the text here seems much more honest as to the range of emotions that would be, you know, engaged in as um, the uncertainty of the future, not just with Ithaca, but between these two characters. I guess that's true. And, of course, there's a lot people have said metaphorically about this bed and that tree. There's a lot in regard to ginger rolls for sure. Uh, You know, what she feels, what he feels. It's way beyond uh, what uh, even the two of them could possibly understand. Reconstructing the Oikos starts with Penelope, and it ends with Penelope. Of course, this is a story about an ancient male told from a male perspective with an ancient male audience in mind. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot here to think about when we think about what constitutes a healthy oikos even today, a home. Many of us want to build an economic social entity that will constitute a positive legacy. The ancient Greeks saw intellectual compatibility as being the heart of this that creates mutual respect and leaves the possibility for an absence of secrets between two partners. I mean, these are the central tenets to creating a partnership that can create a lasting oikos. Of course, I agree. But I will add, um, although Penelope is clearly front and center to all this, uh, what we just read is still chapter 23. Uh, there's one more relationship to be reconstituted, and that is with Laertes, Odysseus's father. Um, if there is to be a complete reconstruction of structure out of chaos, I mean, this relationship is simply not a postscript. It's central. Agreed, of course. Uh, Laertes reminds us that Odysseus gave up immortality with Calypso, for what he's now creating. Laertes is an old man. Also, Penelope's entire shtick for keeping the suitors at bay involved weaving a funeral shroud for Laertes, we assume, upcoming death. So in a sense, and this would be an entire episode if we wanted to talk about Laertes throughout the book, which we cannot, but the meaning of death is in many ways an idea that's been with us from the beginning of the story. We did visit Hades even at one point. But there's something conclusive about this father-son relationship, and we will see three generations here. It's finding resolution in this final recognition that full harmony can be restored. True. And although I will say I found this recognition scene slightly uh, problematic. I know, it really is. Why does Odysseus (laughs) 
have to lie to his father. The first thought I had was that maybe he didn't want to give his father a heart attack with a surprise. <laughs> Thinking back to the recognition scene, you know, like with the dog Argos. Yeah, I don't know. What I do know, and where we will end, because we just don't have time to, to do say much more of anything else, that the story ends with Odysseus and Laertes sharing an intimate moment, but of a different kind of intimacy that we saw between Odysseus and Penelope. We end with trees, and trees are a tangible token of history. They're identifying markers. In this case, the orchard is well-tended, Odysseus will now be a different kind of hero. He will not be a warrior doing battle with the world. He will be a creator of organization, a tender of gardens, a man who will live to see his children grow up, who will build, create, structure a world that had once been chaotic. The Orchard of Alertes bears fruit. There is a little more to the story. Odysseus has to handle this problem with Poseidon and the oar. But in the end, and I think this is the Greek vision of peace, we see a satisfying life. It's not a bad vision. At the very end, Athena says, Hold back, ye men of Ithaca, back from brutal war. Break off. Shed no more blood. Make peace at once. A good idea. I agree. <laughs> it is definitely not a bad vision. Um, you know, they were clearly on to something. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our race through the epic, the Odyssey. Uh, we know there's a lot more to say, but hopefully we left you with some food for thought as you sort through this complex tale that really has mesmerized the world for millennia. Um, please remember that if you enjoy our work, Give us a good review on any of the podcast apps, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, etc. If you're an educator, visit our website for support materials at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And also, feel free to connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or just plain email. We'd love to hear from you. Peace out. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com mm. 